Celebration Rock. Critical conversations about music. Presented by 93X and Uprocks.com. Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and UpRocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. We have a big show today. Uh, my guest is Craig Finn of the Hold Steady and Lifter Puller and Craig Finn's solo career. <laughs> We're going to be talking about the recent Hold Steady shows that they played in Brooklyn and Craig's great record from this year, We All Want the Same Things. We talked about that stuff a little bit, but the main topic of our conversation the main purpose of this podcast is to raise a toast to St. Joe Strummer. And the reason that we're doing that in this episode is that at the end of this week, on December 22nd, it's the 15th anniversary um, of Joe Strummer's death. Um, back on December 22nd, 2002, Joe Strummer went out walking with his dogs, came back to his house, sat on the couch, and he died unexpectedly at the age of 52. It turns out that Joe Strummer had a heart defect that no one knew about. It's a congenital heart condition. You know, and the last person you'd expect to have a defective heart is Joe Strummer. <laughs> you know, this guy had the biggest heart, really, I think, maybe in rock history. But he passed away at a tragically young age. And I thought it was important to recognize this, this anniversary because The Clash, I think that there's still... A foundational band. They're still a band that people care about and love. But, you know, I, I want to make sure that they're still in the conversation. Because in 2017, I think that there's still a lot that we can take from Joe Strummer's music. You know, this was a man who was a strong anti-racist, a strong anti-fascist, a humanitarian. He infused that into his music. And the things that he sang about are clearly things that we're still dealing with today and that we can still draw inspiration from today. And there's also just the fact of how he approached music. You know, this was a guy who, uh, you know, in the early days of The Clash, they were a straightforward punk band, you know, three chords and the truth, as they say. But not long after that, they expanded their music dramatically to the point where The Clash basically played anything that they wanted to play. They were punk not in terms of a sound or a style, but in terms of a, of a philosophy. And that philosophy was freedom and imagination and the idea that these boundaries that exist between different kinds of people and different kinds of music, they don't need to be there. You know, as long as you have the vision and the willingness, you can bridge those boundaries. And that, again, I think is something that we can look at now and see that that is happening, I think, in our culture in a lot of ways in music, but it's still something that I think we can draw inspiration from. So I asked Craig if he'd want to come on the podcast and talk about Joe Strummer, pay tribute to the man, and of course he agreed because he's a huge fan. And of course, you know, that line I quoted earlier, the, the raise a toast to St. Joe Strummer, I was quoting the song Constructive Summer from, from Stay Positive, the 2008 Hold Steady record. I'm sure there's a lot of people that love that song, and maybe they were introduced to Joe Strummer because of Craig Finn. Um, if you still don't know about The Clash, though, I think this episode will help get you into the band, it will help you get into the life of Joe Strummer. Craig has a lot of great stories. He actually met Joe Strummer in the late 90s, which I didn't know, but he has a great story that he tells about that. 
And we just had a good time kind of delving into his career and talking about his legacy and like why Joe Strummer still matters in 2017. Um, this is also a big episode because it's our last episode of 2017. And it's going to be our last episode for a couple months. Uh, we're going to be taking some time off in early 2018. I'm thinking that we'll be back by maybe mid-February at the earliest and the beginning of March at the latest. So we're looking at about a two-month break. But when we come back, we're going to be doing something similar to what we did last year. We did that Pearl Jam series in the spring of 2017, which was a big hit. People seem to really like it. We're going to be doing that again with a, with a different artist, devoting episodes to different albums in this artist's discography and kind of giving people a history of this person's work. I guess I'm going to say person. That's kind of giving you a clue. It's not a band. It's a person <laughs> that we're going to be discussing. But I've already been booking guests for this, and I'm really excited. We have some awesome, awesome guests for this series. I think people are really going to love it. Um, I just want to say, too, you know, this has been a great season for the Celebration Rock podcast. On average, I would say that we've been doing double the size of our audience per week compared to last year. Am, am I right, Derek? Yeah, double, sometimes triple on, on a really good episode. Double, yeah. triple. I mean, some episodes were like quadruple, some were quintuple, <laughs> you know, the average size. Like, we had some really big episodes this year that blew up. You know, the Father John Misty episode was big. The Wilco episode that we recently did was big. Uh, a lot of the Pearl Gem episodes were, were really popular. Five Albums Test was a good one, too. The Five Albums Test with Rob Sheffield, that was a really popular episode. Those were like really huge episodes, but then just like the, the average episode, the typical episode. I mean, there's no average episode of this show. Every show is great, but like a typical episode, even that was like twice as big as last year, which tells me that we have a core audience that is willing to go with us no matter what we talk about, even if it's an artist that they've never heard of, or if it's a topic that going into it, maybe they're not sure if they're interested in it. They're, they're giving it a chance because they're loyal listeners of this show, which makes me feel great. I'm so happy about that, and I'm so glad you guys have been with us this season. And uh, all I can say is that uh, I think next season's going to be even better. <laughs> you know, this, this series that I'm planning for early 2018, I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be great. As we do the show longer, it gets easier to get guests on. I mean, I'm, when we started last year, I had to explain what the podcast was to publicists. You know, a lot of people didn't know what it was, but now we've reached a point where you know it's established a good name for itself, and people are actually kind of pitching their their artists to our show, um, which just makes it easier for us to do better and better shows. So I'm really thrilled about that. And again, I, I want to thank you all for listening and being such loyal uh, followers of this podcast. It's really enabled us to do what we've done so far, and hopefully, hopefully, we can even do better in uh, 2018. Having said that, why don't we get started on our last episode of the year? Here is me and Craig Finn raising a toast to St. Joe Strummer. Just to give people some background here, we were going to talk a week ago, and then the night before we were going to talk, you emailed me and you said, I blew up my voice at, at the Brooklyn Bowl shows that the Hold Steady just played. Can we, can we reschedule? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I really was, was, I lost my voice. I sounded, actually, my girlfriend told me, she said, you shouldn't be going, you're going to, it's painful to listen to you. So um, <laughs> you shouldn't go on any podcast <laughs> this week. Um, um, but yeah, and, and honestly, like, I got through the show, it's fine. Um, but uh, 
I would have played it a little differently if we had, um, you know, we're on tour and we're going to play that Sunday night. And I probably would have stayed away from the uh, Saturday night after party a little more. <laughs> so, so I did it to myself. So that's what gets, it's not necessarily the show. It's what you do after the show. That's what gets you in the end. It can be because, you know, I mean, the thing is, is real, what's really bad for your voice is yelling over music. So if you go to a bar after the show, you're invariably talking loud, you know, and a lot. Right. So you're, so you're yelling over the band during the show, but then you're yelling even <laughs> over other bands after the show. And it's just like four or five hours of yelling at some point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like you never get a break. So I, I feel, you know, obligated as a representative of the city of Minneapolis to ask you, when is the whole city going to do one of these awesome stands here? Because you've done it in uh, Brooklyn a couple of times. You did one in Chicago earlier yeah, this year. I mean, you know, uh, it seems obvious. We just, you know, we're kind of looking for, like, the right special thing, you know? I mean, we could at any point just declare it, you know? But, like, I kind of, like, what's the right moment, you know? Um whether it connects with, you know, like the Chicago one was the Empty Bottles 25th anniversary. The Brooklyn one started last year as the uh, Boys and Girls in America's 10th anniversary. So, you know, I, I keep holding out for something, but at some point we're just going to have to do it. Uh, maybe it's just make it special on our own. But it's an obvious, it's something we all want to do. It's just we haven't found the right, the right time or place yet. And right before you played these shows, or maybe it was during the run, I don't remember exactly, but you also put out two songs on yeah. Bandcamp, which were really well received. They were both really awesome songs. Are you guys, I mean, was that a one-off or are you thinking that you might actually record a record together at some point? Well, I really liked the idea of putting out that single sort of before the, before the shows, you know, I mean, that's, that, those are the songs we have at this point, you know? So, and, and, uh, it was some amount of work to get those done. Um, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure where we're at. That I, I would say that it's not like we have twelve new songs laying around. Right, right. I wanted to bring this up too because you were on my podcast. I think it was the summer of 2016, and mm -hmm. at that time you had just recorded uh, your last solo record, "We All Want the Same Things," and the record came out. I think it was like the, the following February or March. March, yeah, it was March. So, but you just recorded it and you were really excited about it. We talked about it a little at that time. And then the record, of course, comes out. And I really love the record. I, I, and I, I've talked to you about this before. I think it's your best solo record. And it was actually like my 12th or 13th favorite record of the year. It was like, oh, wow. I, I really cool. loved it. Um, am, am I wrong? I, I seem to remember that in that interview, too, like back in 2016, that you were already thinking of the record after that one. Yeah, I mean, I'm always thinking of records. I've always got songs. I mean, I think like I just write songs, and um, they take so long to come out, you know? <laughs> um, and that was honestly like one of the things that I loved about this whole Steady experience, is we recorded those songs like the week before that we put them out. Um, so like, you know, you, if, you, if you say like we're just going to throw physical to the birds, then suddenly you can kind of like, work on this different timeline but you know i think that there's also this part pressure from within uh within pressure to be sort of taken i don't know to, you still i don't know if it's totally internal personal pressure to make an album album um or if it's you know i mean there's there's definitely a debate to be had whether it's necessary anymore 
um, to release a body of 10 or 12 songs. Um, but you, you know, if you're 46 years old, like I am, you, you want that, you want an album. Um, and they also, uh, I think if you're writing the songs that I'm writing right now, there, there tends to be thematic things, you know, that you can group them under. So, so where are you at then with that? Have you, have you recorded subsequent, you know, to those sessions from 2016? Like, do you have stuff in the can or are you still thinking I've about that? I've done a couple, but I'm going into sort of start in earnest in January. Okay. Because I was going to say, I mean, and I, and I like uh, your first two solo records as well, but uh, it did seem like with we all, want the, we all Want the Same Things, just listening to it, it did seem like you were able to find this balance of, because I, I feel like in your solo career, you, you've, you seem pretty deliberate about not sounding like the hold steady. Like, and, you've right. got, and you've done things, I think, that are clear kind of departures from that. Um, but you also are yourself. You're, you know, you have your voice as a songwriter. You have the way that you sure. sing. So there's always going to be a connection to that. But it, it seemed like on this last record, there was like a sense of identity. I think you had as a yeah. as a Craig Finn artist. You know, as apart from the whole mm-hmm. city, that seemed like really strong and defined on that record. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also. I mean, in, in that sense, like I think it was. It was the same second record I made with the same crew of people. You know. Um, so I think there was something there, you know, like, like, I think it, it became its own thing, you know, like, uh, um, and, and, and it's, you know, I, I'm, I'll, I, it's people I love working with and will continue to work with. So, uh, but I was really happy with it. And obviously, um, it's got some nice stuff on the, at the end of the year, people seem to really have taken to God in Chicago, um, which was a great moment, <laughs> even in the studio. Uh, I, I was excited for the world to hear it. Yeah, I remember when I, I saw you play here, um, you know, a couple months ago at the Triple Rock. One of the la- that was the last show I ever saw the Triple Rock. Actually, mm-hmm. I think it closed the next month after you played. Um, but you played God in Chicago first, and mm-hmm. it, it's a great song to open with. You could hear like a, a pin drop in the room. It was just like, you know, I think people love that song, and people maybe who didn't know that song were like, "Whoa, what is this?" It was a, it was like an intense moment hearing that live. I did I did like an acoustic tour, like and it was a, like a lot of living rooms and stuff in the right before the record came out, and I was able to do like just a spoken word of that to open open uh, open up the show. And I think it literally made people, I think it made people uncomfortable at times, <laughs> um, which I love, you know, sort of like, well, I have control here. Like, I, I'm, I'm going to be the guy you listen to, like, uh, you're going to, everyone listen, like, uh, and, and that's a nice thing to have in your set. You can either play it first or last, I feel like, and, and first is just sort of more cool. I mean, I know when I first heard that. And I've, I mean, I've described that song as one of my favorite movies of uh, 2017 mm-hmm. because it feels like a movie when I'm listening to it. And I mean, you are that kind of songwriter. It's, it's, it's very visual. You can see the songs unfold when you're listening to them. Um, do you think in those terms, like, I, I feel like from what I know about you, I think you've dabbled maybe a little bit in screenwriting. I mean, is that something that, that you're interested in at all? Yeah, yeah. And I've done, you know, a little more of it lately. Um, not like it's the kind of thing I, I, I hesitate to talk about because most of these things never get made, you know? <laughs> so like, you know, uh, but I have done more of that, but I am thinking of stories when I'm writing these songs and it's often just like a, a making decisions about, like I can kind of see the story and it's like, how efficiently can I tell the story? What details should be in there? What details do you not need? Um, 
you know, what, what, what do you kind of put in and pull out to make this tension, you know, to make it work and, and for people to be able to see sort of what you're seeing, but also for there to be an air of mystery about it. Yeah. Weren't you going to adapt Fargo Rock City, the Klosterman book, or wasn't there like a plan to do that? Yeah, there was. There was. Um, I wrote it with a friend named Tom Ruprecht who options um, Chuck's book. And um, we, you know, we did it. We were unable to get it made in, you know, sort of the period of the option. Okay. Um, so, it, it, uh, and it was, it was a learning experience. It was, I thought it was funny and good. Uh, but looking back, it was also kind of flawed. Yeah. Okay. Well, enough about you. Because we, I invited you on because we, we wanted to talk about Joe Strummer. It's the yeah. 15th anniversary of his death on December 22nd. And I guess with you, we should, we should start with the song Constructive Summer. Because, you know, that's the song that made me think of you when I wanted to do this episode. And there's the famous line in there about, you know, raise a toast to St. Joe Strummer. He might have been our only decent teacher. What did you mean by that when you wrote that? What were you thinking of? What inspired that? Well... I think that Joe Strummer had this, like, I mean, the thing that's very attractive, he's like, you know, the classes, I say the replacements are my favorite band, but if that's true, the class are number two. Um, he's one of the rock stars, I mean, I think he's a rock star, as well as a punk rock singer, etc., that you can point to that, that brought a sense of positivity um, to the, the music and the stage presence. I mean, certainly, like, a heavy, like, like, you know, we're, we can do this, like, you know, we're, we're in this together. Their relationships with their fans, you know, sneaking them into gigs, giving them space in their hotel rooms to sleep when fans would travel for shows. That's all very inspiring and in what I sort of thought was the, the, the potential in rock and roll that is, you know, different than Axl Rose you know, waiting, you know, making a, a, a helicopter wait for him for three hours. <laughs> you know, I mean, that there's there seen, and you know, I think the class took some, took criticism for when they actually behaved like a real rock band of its time. Um, but Joe Strummer seemed to be trying to be more, trying to be, you know, a, a folk singer or a leader of some sort. You know, it seems like, yeah, I've idolized um, Woody Guthrie and, um, things like that. Um, and also just reading about the class, like hearing of him, you know, being kind of tireless and, and, you know, being up before everyone else and slipping notes between being under everyone's doors with ideas he had and running, you know, declaring one year, the year of the body and running a marathon. Um, that all seemed very inspiring. And what, what, like kind of a, you know, like, um, a rock and roll singer, could be a real kind of populist in, in that sense of the word. Right. That, and, I, and I think the rock star thing is important with him because he is a, he's obviously a punk icon, but he's also like a really good looking guy who had tons yeah. of charisma that, you know, he, he's not Axl Rose, but he has an Axl Rose thing. And yet he's able to harness that in a completely different way. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the time that I met him, he came in the room at the 400 bar and he had an air of being famous. He like, so when you see a real celebrity, they look like celebrities, you know, like, uh, he had, he, like, he was definitely 
carried himself with an energy and a, a poise that said, I'm, you know, I'm the most famous person in this room. <laughs> now, I didn't know that you had met him. You kind of just slipped that in there. I'm guessing well, this was like in the 90s at some point, like Lifter Puller era? This is a great story. It was the Fiestas and Fiascos release party. <laughs> okay. And um, uh, the Mescaleros were playing in town. We had a big article come out that in the city pages that day, like written by Keith Harris. Um, I don't know if Joe read that article, but I think what happened is th- their show was kind of early. And, um, and just so we you know, this, is friendly. Like, this was like 99 or something? Yeah, November 99. Okay. So he was, uh, um, their show kind of was early. It was down at the Quest or whatever that's called down in downtown. And he was friendly. We were friendly with Billy Joel Armstrong, who walked in. Uh, all of a sudden, I think he brought him over. Well, he, he did. And so we're downstairs and ready to go on. And um, the club owner comes down and says, guys, Joe Strummer's in the building. And I'm like, okay, well, he's going to have a drink and hang out and, you know, do his thing and whatever. So we go up there and we're kind of setting up and we, the guy comes over again. It's like, there's someone who wants to meet you. And I look over and it's Joe Strummer and he's with Billy Joe Armstrong. And, uh, you know, it, it's funny too, because like Billy Joe Armstrong is a big celebrity also at this point, but <laughs> when you're standing next to Joe Strummer, no one cares. <laughs> um, um, and so he's looking cool. He's got like a cool suit on and he gives Tan a drink and it was, and, and he said, Oh, Tad tried it and gave it back to him. He thought he just was offering him a sip and he goes, no, no, no. And he said, well, that's good. What is it? I think it was a brandy. I think it was a brandy Manhattan. It's a brandy Manhattan. Hmm. So Tad gave him back. And he goes, no, 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 no. That's a stage drink. That's a stage drink. So, you know, um, we we start playing and he's on the side of the stage by the way the leads to the backstage and I can't look until about three songs in I spin around and he's there jumping up and down with his arms up <laughs> and I, I'm not making the story up it's one of the craziest things ever so after we come off stage he kisses me on the lips <laughs> and he said I need you guys to give me five minutes and then do a couple more um and so we go down, and I'm like, you know, we'll do anything for you, Joe. So <laughs> we wait a bit, and we come back up, and we do two more songs. He's he's run out to the, like, he's got people, the, the bus was parked outside. And he got some of his band to come in. Some of them were, like, wrapped in blankets. And we played two more songs, and he's like, that's what a real rock and roll band's like. Now, Joe, this night, was had had a fair amount to drink. <laughs> um, <laughs> he kept telling me you're going to be bigger than blur lifter puller is going to be bigger than blur bigger than pavement going to be bigger than blur he kept coming back to blur uh <laughs> and then he hung out with us and uh we smoked a joint and we asked him to speak spanish because it always sounds so cool when he speaks spanish and he told a local journalist um this is lifter puller's world the rest of us just live in it which i thought was really cool and he gave me, it's weird, he gave me his home address and phone number, which I thought was really cool at the time. But the next day I woke up and I was like, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to call him? <laughs> and anyways, I, honestly, this, this weirdest thing is that I did not take a photo with him 
because I thought we were going to start hanging out all the time. <laughs> like it seemed like we were just friends now. But I've I met people from all over who have told me that in the following months after that show, he was whenever he'd meet people, he'd tell them about Lifter Polar. Oh people met God. him in hotel lobbies and whatnot. So that was pretty great. And did you see him again after that? No, nope. that was the last time. Yep. Um, yep. That's incredible. So. You, know, you said earlier that you're 46 and, and I'm 40. So that means that we're both in the age group where like we would have, I mean, I don't know if I was born yet when the first Clash record came out, but you know, we were too young maybe to be like in the thick of it when Joe Strummer first came about. Like, like how did he enter your world? Well, I mean, the first thing, the way he entered my world is the very early days of MTV, like sixth grade. I got MTV. It was the first year it was on and they would play Rock the Casbah. And, uh, you know, I became aware of them through that, and kids at school liked that song. So we had Combat Rock, Straight to Hell. But then, like, once we were into that, I sort of noticed that, like, a lot of people's older brothers had, like, a more of a clash depth, you know? Like, like you'd see people with London calling at their house and whatnot. And um, so when I, I was always, like, you know, I kind of didn't really know it that well until ninth grade i went to a new school and these kids that at the new school were like clash freaks and um they immediately they they wouldn't talk about anything else so uh they became my friends and we started listening to clash together and like you know um got everything and uh yeah so so it was it was there's probably a delay between when I first heard him and when I got super into him, but you know, then there was all, so much to get into by that point since it was all behind us. Although I think cut the crab came out that year and we were even in ninth grade, we were a little bit disappointed. <laughs> See, I've never really listened to that album just because I, it had such a bad reputation that I was like, I'm not even going to check it out. I mean, yeah, it was, a, it was sort of, you know, like we were all right. We knew it was sort of the, not the clash. Because like Mick I mean, Jones was gone, right? But Joe Strummer was still in the in the fold. He was sort of like the main. Was, yeah, and it was like some sort of busker group or something. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like I don't know the other guys, but it wasn't. It didn't have. You know, it certainly wasn't urgent. You know, it wasn't what we were used to. So you you mentioned the video for Rock the Casbah, and I remember seeing that when I was like five or six years old. Like when I would like my very early days watching MTV. And I feel like that video was on around the same time as like thriller and, you know, like, mm-hmm. all, like all those big early eighties songs. And the thing that's interesting to me always about that video is that it shows the clash. I think they're playing at Shea stadium and it makes them seem like they're this huge stadium band, but they were opening for the who on yeah. their 82 tour. So but yeah. if you just watch the video though, it's like, wow, the clash is like the biggest band in the world. You know, right. From the performance footage. Um, I think that's also true. I think maybe the should I stay, should I go video was also filmed at those shows I, too. Maybe. I believe that's correct. I believe that's correct. You know, one of the things that was also interesting about like when you got in, like I hadn't like really, you know, stuff like the sort of like flirtation with, well, certainly reggae, but even like talking about rocking the Casbah or Sandinista, there was all this, this sort of worldliness to it all. That was that felt very expansive, at, you know. When I first started digging in, like these guys, kind of are 
are out there. They're 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 of the world. They're 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 bigger than just like a you know local local band or whatever. They 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 seem global. Right. Yeah. I mean, which was the thing that I, I think it took. I think that threw me for a loop for a little bit when I first started listening to them because you know the Clash was always a band that I had read about, and then I would hear other bands referencing them. And the punk music that I was familiar with, like when I was 11 or 12 or so, was like that sort of early 90s Southern California punk, you know? So mm-hmm. like Rancid, like Rancid was sort of like a very Clash-influenced band in, in, in some ways. So like I think I went to those records expecting that kind of stuff. And then you put on London Calling or Sandinista, and a lot of that doesn't even sound like the sort of cookie cutter punk that you're raised to believe what you know you think that punk is sort of a sound rather than an idea and like the clash definitely approached it as an idea of like well we can do anything we want and that was before it kind of became codified into this very sort of distinct sound that you're supposed to sound like but i I know for me it, it kind of blew my mind i was like how is this even a punk band i don't understand like it was confusing at first Listening to them. It's, yeah, it, it definitely, because there's like tons of danceable music, Radio Clash, you know, um, Magnificent Seven, all that stuff. Rock the Casbah is danceable. Like, you know, and I, I just think about like, it's kind of brave in that, like, you know, they would go to New York and, and get turned on to, you know, whatever, hip hop, turntablism, whatever it may be, and then go put it in their own music. Which, you know, if I went somewhere abroad and I've heard some new music, I would be like, well, that's really nice. I like that a lot. I'm going to, you know, listen to it when I get home. But I'm not going to, I'd be scared to incorporate it into my own thing because it would just, just wouldn't feel right. But they sort of were, were fearless in that way. Like yeah. if they heard it and liked it, it would become part of what they did. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like you, what you were talking about earlier with that whole Steady single you just put out where you're like, well, we recorded it last week and we posted it you know, right away. I mean, it probably wasn't quite that fast for the clash, but it does seem like, oh, we went to New York and we heard rap music, so let's do the Magnificent Seven and then it's on yeah. Sandinista. You know, and like yeah. and, and we're gonna put dub songs on there and we're gonna put really poppy songs on there. And uh it's you know, because we're a punk band it's gonna be punk, even though yeah, it yeah, doesn't yeah, sound I mean, like in it. The same, I mean in the same sense you almost look at the Minutemen and say the same thing. Like you could play the Minutemen for someone at Warp Tour last summer, and be like, "This is punk," and they'd be like, "What? No, this isn't. You know, this isn't punk." But I mean, the class seems the same way. They, uh, yeah, it, it's it seems like they were, uh, yeah, almost like it was almost like a I don't know how to explain it, but like a news, yeah, like whatever happened, got in their music quickly and came back at you. Yeah. All right, guys, there's more of my conversation with Craig Finn about Joe Strummer coming up here in a minute. But before we get to that, I just want to tell you about my book. It's called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me. It came out in 2016. It's a book about music rivalries. I wrote about the Beatles and the Stones. I wrote about Blur versus Oasis. I wrote about Kanye West and Taylor Swift. And there's like 15 other rivalries after that. Now, I'm telling you about this because it's the holiday season We have about a week or so before uh, Christmas comes around. There's still time to buy a stocking stuffer for the music lover in your life. And if I may say so, I think this book, it fits comfortably in stockings at least. (laughs) I think it's a good book, but if you're just looking for something to slot in that stocking, 
it's a pretty small or, you know, it's like a medium-sized book. It'll fit in there very comfortably, and it doesn't cost very much. It's only about 11 or 12 bucks. So if you haven't gotten the book yet, um, this is just a, a, a nice recommendation. Check out the book. I think it'll be a great Christmas gift. I also want to say, I'll probably be talking about this a lot more. Actually, I know I, I, I will be talking about this a lot more next year, but I have a book coming out in May of 2018. It's called Twilight of the Gods. It's a book about the classic rock era and how the rock stars of that time are starting to pass away. You know, we've seen this. You know, Tom Petty died this year. Of course, last year we had David Bowie and Glenn Frey and Prince and, and so many others. Uh, this book is sort of reflecting on that and what it means to witness the end of that era in real time. So if you want to pre-order that book, and again, I'll be talking a lot, a lot about this. I think you may be sick of it by the time I'm done talking about it. But for now, what, if you want to pre-order that book, you can do it now at your favorite online retailers, or you can go down to your local bookstore and pre-order it there too. So, okay, let's get back to my conversation with Craig Finn about Joe Strummer. It's funny too, because I mean, now I feel like you can get the original versions of the albums too that weren't available in America. I guess the first record is the only one where there's different versions of it. There's, a, there's the British version and then there's the American yeah. version. And actually the American version of the first Clash record is the first Clash album I ever owned. I remember I rode my bike to Best Buy, uh, which was on the other side of the town. It was like a big journey to get there because it was like one of the only record stores in my town. And I bought the cassette. And on the American version, they have the singles that they put out at that time. So like the first song is Clash City Rockers. Yeah. And then uh, Complete Control is on the second side, which is one of my favorite Clash songs of all time. So yep. I actually bought the British version, and I know that's like the real version of the record, but I don't like it as much because Complete Control's not on it, Clash City Rockers isn't on it, and there's like some songs that they took off the American version, which are sort of, in my mind, lesser album tracks, maybe yeah, like 48 Hours like might be one, or Cheat. Protex Blue, maybe, is that one? Yeah, yeah, which, um, they're, they're, they're kind of punkier songs, but like, it's like, I'd rather have Complete Control on here, even if it's like, it's like a bastardized <laughs> version. I'm I'm with you. I mean, I'm like I'm I'm. It's sort of a, the big star third thing. You love, you fall in love with the version you had, you know. <laughs> right. And uh, and I'm I had that American American version, and that's how I always hear it. It's got to start with Clash City Rockers, right? And I love the connect because I already knew the Who a little bit at that point. I love that they took the riff of I can't explain yeah. and wrote a new song over it. I thought that's so cool. Like the connections between different bands. And, and kind of realizing, you know, they were influenced by this, and they're, they're just going to steal the song and write a new song, and it sounds really cool. Have you read the book about the making of London Calling? It's called, like, Route 19 Revisited or something? No. It's very interesting. It's, um, it's a really good book. It's maybe my favorite class book, because it, it, it goes one by one, but it talks about how So Lost in the Supermarket is a Mick Jones song, right? But... Apparently, what it's saying in this book is that Joe wrote it, and he wrote it from Nick's perspective because Joe like grew up in I don't know did he grow up in Turkey or something? Yeah. Like so, it was more like about someone who grew up in the suburbs in in England, and which was Nick Jones. So it was kind of Joe writing about Nick Jones, what he thought his childhood would be like, or and and gave it to him, and then gave him the publishing too. Said, well, it's just going to be from yours. <laughs> you know, so 
I, you know, I have no way of verifying that, but that's what this book says, and you know, I had reports to back it up, which which seems incredible in some way. Well, I remember I saw this interview with Mick Jones where he talked about how Joe Strummer would write lyrics on a typewriter. And yeah. I think he, he said he's like a newspaper man. He would just like bang out lyrics and hand it to Mick and be like, you know, find some music to go with this. Sure. And I don't know if That's, that was like their typical songwriting process or, or what, or how that worked with them. Would they you, would do, they would do, yeah, he would, that was in the book. He'd always sit at a typewriter and just bang away. And he'd, you know, he'd write lyrics and write lyrics and write lyrics. It was like Bob Dylan did that same thing. Like, he's, don't look back. You see him plucking away at a typewriter and just bashing out stuff like that. Which is I mean, it certainly seems like I would have never got in ninth grade. I would say like the clash has nothing to do with Bob Dylan, but you know, <laughs> at 46, I look back and say it's obvious that Dylan was a huge hero of his. I mean, as a lyricist, you know, as a songwriter yourself, like looking at Joe Strummer's lyrics, like what's your assessment of that? Like, what, what do you feel like were his strengths and do you feel like he was an influence at all on you? Well, he's he's pretty direct, you know. Um, you know, there it's not um you know, he, he kinda says what he means, right? I mean, for the most part. But I think that there was this like I, I he like when you think about London calling or something like that, London calling he he used a lot of like scary images, you know, like like things are burning. There was this sort of apocalyptic view of the world which which made you feel, made everything feel bigger and more important somehow. Um, and I think that, you know, he did that throughout, that, that was uh, cool and exciting. Or Straight to Hell would be another one, like, um, you know, uh, just something that was very, he was very dramatic always, and you felt like you were on the edge of something, you know, like um, uh, that, that, made it, that made it exciting. So I think some of that, theatrical nature or some of that cinema, cinematic nature was something that attracted me and something probably that I tried to take on my own when I started writing songs. Yeah, and there's also something, too, about how he handles his own lyrics where he's not very precious about it. You know, like there's a lot of Clash songs where you don't necessarily know what he's saying just because he has like this sort of rhythmic uh, shouting style of singing. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, then, I'm sure there's Clash songs I don't know what the hell. Because, I mean, I was looking at the lyrics to, like, to London Calling, and I was like, this, there's, I mean, because I always think of, you know, there's always, like, lines that jump out of Clash songs that kind of get burned into your brain, like the, like the phony Beatlemania has, has bitten yeah. the dust. There's, like, always a line that jumps out, and it's, like, in a way, you know, all you need is, like, a line or two like that in a, in a song, and the whole song can be about that. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. if you have that one kind of burning, catching, catchy line, uh, you know, that people can remember, it's like, okay, that's what the song's about. Or, uh, yeah. or or London is drowning and I live by the river, you know? Okay. I, know I think what that, that song also, is. some of the other stuff that I loved was, I mean, some of the specifics, which as a young rock fan, uh, you know, prior to the internet, I didn't know, like, I mean, I, well, I still don't know what Sten Guns and Knightsbridge Hall probably means, <laughs> but, you know, 999 even, you know, dial 999. I, I guess I could piece together what that meant, but you know these these British or London things that kind of made that made it sound exciting, you know, a, a different world. Right, right. I'm curious too, like what how you feel about Strummer as a singer because he definitely had that untrained thing that a lot of punk rock singers have, and yet as the Clash progress, 
you can, and I think he had a lot of soul and guts and I mean, he's a, he's one of the great rock singers I think ever, but like, he, you know, his singing kind of gradually improved as he goes along. And I think there's a definitely, definitely a parallel with you in your own career where you've kind of become a singer as, as you progress in your career. Like, yeah. How do you, how, was that an inspiration at all? Like hearing someone like Strummer sing and the way he sang? I mean, I think like a lot, all, all punk rock in the clash, certainly are inspirational and just saying like you can do it you know you can you don't have to be able to sing like um robert plant or um michael bolton to to have a band um but i do think that like it's probably you know probably what happened to joe is what happened to me is that you just spend thousands and thousands of hours in front of a microphone and you start to get better and you start to listen to different music and appreciate things with, with soul. I mean, what's, what, what's still all, you know, the thing I think about him or and really about the band is how much music scene they listen to, you know, and, and their taste, like, you know, how they would have Grandmaster Flash open, but also Bo Diddley. And, um, and it feels like he was constantly searching for music which is why you ended up at the 400 bar to lift your polar sh- show, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's also something like if you continue to listen to things and say like, Oh man, I can, I, I hear how that vocalist does this thing. That's not, you know, outside of my range. Um, you know, we can, I can work on that. Well, and like he could, you know, like in the magnificent seven, he's basically rapping and he could yeah. do it in a way, though, where it's not corny. It sounds like him. You don't even think sometimes that he's rapping. You know, it just sounds like, well, it's Joe Strummer maybe talking rhythmically. But it, it sounds like himself, yeah. but he's singing in a different kind of style that he's just discovered and that he thinks is, is cool and he wants to integrate into his music. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the reggae stuff he does, which, you know, like what somehow he manages to do it from, it, from himself in a way that seems very natural. And not, you know, not to me, not corny at all. Right. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's dangerous territory. <laughs> well, and he could even do that, like, you know, like Police and Thieves off the first Clash record. Uh, was yeah. A Bunny Marvin song. And like he could, yeah, he, he, I think that's a very unique thing. I, I mean, I was just thinking about um, like Mick Jagger. Like if you listen to Rolling Stone songs where they're doing reggae, you know, it, yeah. it, seems, like his tad, well, it seems like his tactic of doing that is almost like exaggerating it and yep. making it kind of playing it up so it's like yeah i know i'm not good at it but i'm sort of in on the joke so it, right, it, that right. becomes part of it whereas strummer you know there's this very sort of unselfconscious way that he could just kind of burrow into that stuff and make mm-hmm. it his in a very like as you say a very natural way and and not make it seem silly that this like white british guy whose dad is a diplomat you know yeah, you know, all the class things that he had in his background, that he could do that in a very yeah kind of normal way. Well, it, yeah, I mean, it's why he's a superhero. <laughs> um, do you remember uh, where where you were when you heard that he died? Yeah, I was working in an office in New York. I'd moved to New York, and um, I was. You know, it was right before Christmas. I think it must have been like, I mean, if it was the 22nd, that means we pretty much were right about to break for Christmas. Um, uh, so I remember this girl came in and said, Craig Joe Strummer died, a friend of mine. And uh, she knew I'd be, I'd, I'd care and be heartbroken. 
And um, I just remember, I remember it was, you know, because of that experience we had with him with lifter puller, it was, it was, it was, you know, very sad and very, very, I mean, you, we all get sad when our favorite singers die. But that one seemed like, like especially just crushing. Yeah. Um, and, and sudden, like, it was like, what, how, where, where, you know? Well, and he had gone through a period after the clash where he, he was in sort of a wilderness period. I mean, he was in films. He's really great in, like, Mystery Train, just to name one example yeah. of a film he was in. But it seemed like towards the end of the 90s, he had really reestablished himself as a musical force. He was touring with the Mescaleros. Uh, he had done, like, film soundtrack work. And uh, he was a young man. He was, like, 52, I think, when he died. And, and the Mescaleros were great. Like, that was, you know, like like, I was excited for them you know like that was an exciting new chapter yeah and those um, records that, are so adventurous too like i was revisiting those recently and they definitely pick up where like sandinista and combat rock leave off yeah it was there seemed to be there's much to look forward to yeah um and unfortunately it and suddenly that was that was done but you know i mean it's funny you see I always kind of get heartened when I see, like, there's of course that build, uh, that mural on the side of Niagara in um, uh, New York on Seventh and A. Um, and then I, you know, took a photo of one in London the other you know, just a little while ago. There's, there's, there's certainly an impact that um, he. The, the, you know, he's not someone I don't. I think that will be easily forgotten just because the music, but also the way he lived. I mean, what do you think his legacy ultimately is? I mean, I think his legacy is that sort of electrified folk singer that you know, like the like the populist thing that I said that like he was a rock star that was for something, and you know the the the, the footage I love watching when you know have too many glasses of wine and get on YouTube. It's a <laughs> rock against racism show in, uh, in the park in London. Um, but there was, you know, just the talking, um, I don't know, he, you know, know your rights, all that kind of thing. He, he felt politically involved, activated. And, uh, um, besides all the music, I think that you will remember him as, as someone who cared. Yeah. I would add to that. There's something about the clash that in a way now seems sort of typical, you know, the, 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 the sort of big ears aspect of the clash, the, the eclectic nature of the clash. I mean, now we're sort of used to everyone sort of likes everything. You know, you, you, people tend to not just stay in their own lane. They like a little bit of hip hop. They love a little bit of funk. They love a little rock, a little bit of punk. But mm -hmm. like, I think when the clash started, that was more unique, you know, and I think that the way that they approached music from sort of like, uh, you know, a non-silo point of view, this idea that, like, like you said, we're going to have Grandmaster Flash on our show, but we're going to have Bo Diddley on our show. We're going to have Lee Dorsey on our show. Um, you know, it's not just going to be a punk thing. It's going, you know, we're going to use our music to sort of break down those those sorts of uh, barriers. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think they were ahead of their time in that way. Um, and and you know, I go back to me listening to them as a younger person and and not getting it and sort of being frustrated at first by records like. London Calling and Sandinista because I just wanted straightforward guitar songs. I didn't understand why there had to be dub songs and you know and 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 rap songs and 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 all these other kinds of songs. 
and then over time, you know, getting over that and loving that and then using that as sort of a bridge to other types of music and, and having your, your consciousness expanded for that reason. Um, I think that was, I think that's one of their great legacies as well. I would totally agree. I would totally agree. Um, and you know, <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, yeah, and, 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 and sort of pointing things that like when I was in the class in ninth grade, you know, putting it up against other things, I don't know if I would have thought Bo Diddley was cool unless the clash told me that he was cool. And I, <laughs> then I, then I realized it's cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, and I would imagine, I mean, and for you again, like, you know, including Joe Strummer and a hold steady song, you know, that shout out. I mean, I mean, do you have people asking you about Joe Strummer? Do people know who Joe Strummer is? Like when you sing about that? I mean, I, I feel like there's probably people that got into the clash maybe because you mentioned him in that song. Maybe I will say that when we, you know, we just did four shows, and though that's the song, you know, "Constructive Summer" is a song that most likely is going to get played every night. Yeah, and it's a big moment when we say "Raise a Toast to St. Joe Strummer." Glasses go up in the air. Yeah, I mean, you know, like seventy-five to eighty <laughs> percent. Um, so it feels like people are hearing it and appreciative. Yeah. Well, I am raising a, my hand right now. I don't have a glass. I wish I did, but I'm raising a, an imaginary toast to St. Joe's drummer right now. Uh, hey, Craig, thanks again, man, for doing this. It's always uh, great talking with you. Hey, thanks, Stephen. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right, take care. All right, that was me and Craig Finn. We raised our toast. We raised our imaginary glasses to the, the punk rock god in the sky, Joe Strummer. That was fun to talk about. And uh, that's a wrap on the second season of Celebration Rock. Our, this is our last episode of the year, our last episode into early 2018. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you, Derek Madden, our producer. Thank you. For being on board. Thank you to Josh Copperman for uh, writing our uh, theme song, which is great. Uh, and thank you all for listening uh, to uh, this podcast and supporting us, talking about us on iTunes and uh, talking about us on social media. You guys are the best. Thank you so much for your support. And we'll look forward to talking to you guys again in early 2018. Take it easy.